Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Aksarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University Hospital. Joining us today is Dr. Martin Schreiber, Professor of Surgery at the Oregon Health Sciences University. Dr. Schreiber is a colonel in the United States Army Reserve and, ha- and as such has extensive experience with and interest in the use of topical hemostatics following trauma. Hemorrhage remains the leading cause of preventable death following trauma. Novel hemostatic agents have recently become available with variable reports regarding their efficacy. In this podcast, we will review the various types of novel hemostatic agents, their uses, and their limitations with Dr. Schreiber. The intent of the podcast is not to support any particular product, but we will be using trade names of specific commonly used products so as to enable listeners to apply the discussion directly to their practice as they see fit. Welcome, Dr. Schreiber. Let's start by dividing our discussion to three parts. Uh, let's talk about the older, more traditional uh, mechanical hemostatics, things like gel foam, surgicel, avatine. And then we'll talk about uh, liquid thrombin-based hemostatics, thrombin spray, seal, flow seal. And then finally, we'll talk about uh, the novel stuff that I alluded to, quick clot, combat gauze, Celox, and Hemcon. Uh, let's start with tried and true. Uh, gel foam, surgicel, avatine. How do these products work, and what are their limits? Those products are the me- are known as mechanical uh, hemostatic agents, and really you can uh, divide agents into two categories, uh, mechanical agents and active agents. And the key difference between those two are really the absence or presence of thrombin. So in order to have an active hemostatic agent, you uh, need to have thrombin present. In terms of the mechanical hemostatic agents, These do not have intrinsic uh, clot activation activity. What they do is they form a matrix uh, upon which uh, the extrinsic clotting pathway is activated. And in order for these to function, uh, you must have an intact coagulation uh, system within the host. So I think that's the key element. Uh, These agents are useful, I think, for situations of minor bleeding, uh, not typically used in patients who have uh, severe bleeding. Uh, obviously, the, the, the source of the bleeding has to be easy to access and uh, generally is, is, is really for the minor bleeding. And not and very useful for coagulopathic patients. Not, not, no, because you really have to have an intact coagulation system for them to work. So uh, there has to be adequate uh, presence of thrombin as well as fibrinogen. And those patients who are coagulopathic and those are not present, these agents will not be highly effective. And in terms of coagulopathy, we're including in that patients who are coagulopathic from just tissue destruction trauma, not just the heparinized or cumulonized patient. Absolutely. So patients with the acute coagulopathy of trauma, dilutional coagulopathy, hypothermia, any source of coagulopathy uh, in those types of patients, their coagulation system is not functioning adequately for these agents to be uh, very effective. Okay. And so let's move on then to the thrombin-based um, uh, hemostatics, things like Tisseal, Flowseal, and thrombin spray. So those agents are active agents. They do contain thrombin. Uh, let me just take a, a quick step backward. Uh, obviously, the mechanical agents can be used with thrombin. So gel foam uh, can be used with thrombin. That's a common technique and, and the typical way in which, in which it is used. And then you're sort of converting a mechanical agent into a, uh, an active agent in that situation. And in that situation, uh, you do get more activity in the coagulopathic patient. However, uh, even in that situation, you're you're dependent on an adequate quantity of fibrinogen to be present. Thrombin functions by cleaving fibrinogen to fibrin, which then cross-links and forms a clot. 
so if fibrinogen levels are low, even in the situation where you convert the uh, mechanical agents to an active agent with the use of thrombin, they will not function uh, if the patient is hypofibrinogenemic. Uh, moving on then to the active agents, uh, agents like uh, Flowseal. Uh, these agents uh, typically include the use of thrombin. Uh, and then a gelatin agent, either bovine or porcine, typically. And uh, these agents are basically the thrombin component and, the, uh, and the, the bovine or porcine component are kept separate and then joined together to form the active agent. Uh, these agents, I think, are, are very useful and can be useful uh, in coagulopathic patients. Uh, again, they do not contain fibrinogen, and therefore... Uh, in a hypofibrinogenemic patient may not be uh, very functional. Uh, these agents are also interesting in that they can be delivered in, uh, through different mechanisms. For instance, uh, an ap the applicators that are typically used for, for uh, these agents uh, can be used to fill uh, areas that are either a gunshot wound tract, uh, crack in the liver, crack in the spleen. So you can force these agents into uh, smaller areas with the applicator devices. Uh, and one, I think one very important aspect of choosing a topical hemostatic agent, uh, there's several important aspects. One is the degree of bleeding, whether or not the patient is coagulopathic, but also the actual nature of the wound is an important factor. Uh, so whether this is a, you know, let's say you've done a retroperitoneal dissection, you have a broad area of bleeding. In that scenario, you, would, you might want to use an agent that can be applied as a spray, like a thrombin spray or Evacel, which is a fibrin sealant that can be sprayed. Uh, if you have another type of wound, which is a tract-type injury, uh, which is difficult to access, then these applicator devices that are used uh, with, a, with something uh, like Flowseal are very helpful, and you can fill tracts. And uh, the bovine component or the porcine component of these things are microgranules that actually, when they're exposed to bleeding, expand. And they can have a compressive effect as well as a, an active clotting effect. And I was actually going to ask you, once you spray these things down or fill a tract, are you then putting some pads down to put pressure on top of it? Yeah. So in my practice, uh, if I use something like Flowseal, I will apply it into the bleeding surface and then I, I hold pressure for five minutes by the clock. So I will literally uh, look at the clock and uh, typically have my resident uh, hold pressure for five minutes. Uh, and then after that period of time, I'll remove the pressure. And in most cases, uh, uh, hemostasis is achieved, but in some cases, uh, additional applications and pressure holding is required. Okay. And uh, now getting to the newest kids on the market, uh, which are the things such as Quick Clot, HemeCon, Celox, they all work differently. And let's just take them one at a time. How do they work, and when do they? When do you use them? Okay, so those are uh, that's a good question. Uh, these newer agents are primary were primarily developed for use by the military, and have been primarily used by the military, but also in addition have been used now uh, more and more in civilian practice. So uh, I think I'd start off with uh, HemeCon. Uh, the initial HemeCon dressing was the first one uh, fielded by the military, first advanced hemostatic dressing. Uh, this dressing is essentially a chitosan-based uh, dressing. Uh, chitosan is from the exoskeleton of essentially shrimp, uh, and it, the me mechanism of action is a mucoadhesive type of action. So if there's an exposed surface that's bleeding, this dressing actually will stick to that surface and seal the, seal the area of bleeding. Theoretically, the action of the dressing is independent of coagulation status. 
So whether or not the patient is uh, coagulopathic, based on the mucoadhesive principle, the dressing will, fit, will stick to exposed surfaces and stop bleeding in that, in that manner. The initial uh, hemocon dressing that was fielded uh, by the military uh, was not pliable. Uh, so it was not uh, very effective in the cases of irregular types of wounds uh, where it, the dressing is absolutely dependent on having an active contact between the dressing itself and the surface. Because you're basically plugging the hole. Exactly. So you're plugging the hole, and if the dressing is not an immediate application of the surface, it will not work. And I think that was a big problem with the dressing. Um, in terms of the hemocon dressing, uh, most of the studies that were done with it were in animal models. Uh, animal models can be manipulated to seek uh, certain effects, and they can be the, reg the wounds can be made whatever the investigator wants them to be. There is a clinical study that was published uh, showing the efficacy. It's not a prospective randomized trial. Essentially, uh, a number of applications were performed, and the success rate of the uh, hemostasis was recorded. So the hemocon dressing was the first dressing. There have been several generations of the of the dressing of that dressing that have now become more and more pliable. Uh, the Kytoflex dressing is more like a gauze type dressing, but it's still a little bit stiff. But it's much uh, easier to apply than the original dressing, which which was not pliable at all. The next dressing that was utilized by the military, interestingly, the Army was primarily using the hemocon dressing, the, uh, and then the Navy was using something called quick clot. Quick clot is a granular zeolite dressing, which is really uh, volcanic rocks. And the, uh, the mechanism, the way that dressing works is actually it's more of a granular powder. And this stuff is poured into a wound. It does shape to whatever form the wound is. And, it, and what happens is there's an exothermic reaction. So heat is generated. And what that does is it dehydrates the area locally, which concentrates the coagulation factors. So supposedly between the hexothermic reaction and the concentration of coagulation factors by dehydration, uh, this dressing is functional. This dressing, uh, similar to the hemocon dressing, primarily studying animal models. Also, there's another report in humans. Uh, this report includes military use, police use, buddy use, non-trained individual use, very high rate of success. Uh, there are actually a couple of reports in that clinical study that, where it was used internally which it's not FDA approved for, and there was one case in which the ureter was actually damaged. Uh, this dressing gets very hot, up to 65 degrees Celsius, and interestingly, the degree of heat that's produced is proportional to the amount of water present. So as the patient becomes more anemic and is bleeding more, that's when it gets hottest. So this can actually injure the caregiver who's applying it. It should be applied with gloves uh, and can cause burns to the recipient. So these two dressings uh, were very popular earlier in the war, uh, war period, but now have off, actually dropped off quite a bit. And the, and the dressings that are cu currently being used, uh, number one uh, is the combat gauze, which is carried by essentially every, every war fighter, every U.S. war fighter in their first aid package. And then the British military interestingly uses sea locks. So just going over those two very briefly, uh, combat gauze is a thin uh, woven gauze which is impregnated with kaolin. Kaolin is essentially a clay that, that uh, very aggressively activates the clotting pathway. And for those that are familiar with uh, thrombolastograms, actually the cups of the thrombolastogram are typically impregnated with kaolin to accelerate the clotting process to speed up the, the formation of the tag. So this is the same product that is uh, present on the combat gauze dressing. The combat gauze dressing is very pliable. 
it's very easy to apply, uh, can be applied rapidly, and it conforms to irregular wounds. So it uh, takes advantage of some of the problems that were uh, present with the earlier HemeCon uh, dressing. So this distressing can be applied, uh, conforms, and pressure is held uh, as well. The manufacturer recommends that the dressing be held for three to five minutes. So that's the recommending recommendation from, from the manufacturer. Now, this limits its use in the military setting where we have something called care under fire. Care under fire is where there are, there are uh, injured combatants, but they must be firing back. Their first priority is to fire back at the enemy. So you cannot be holding pressure for three to five minutes while you're under fire. So uh, this dressing is not actually recommended for that scenario. And instead, uh, things like tourniquets are being used. So you place a tourniquet. It takes a few seconds to put the tourniquet on. You move on. Keep fighting. Uh, the literature on combat gauze, again, primarily animal literature, very effective in animal literature. There is a, actually very little clinical data at all on, on the combat gauze. Uh, in terms of the CELOX, CELOX, again, uh, recommended by the British uh, military. Their, their warfighters are carrying this in their first aid kit. CELOX uh, is another chitosan-based dressing that is, uh, that is impregnated on a pliable gauze as well. So again, very easy to apply, conforms to wounds, uh, and very effective. Uh, our laboratory has studied all of these dressings, uh, and what we are seeking to do in our laboratory is to find a dressing that would be appropriate for use in the care under fire scenario. So we study them uh, not in the way that the manufacturer had recommended with a three to five minute hold, but we, were, we would place the dressings and then study their, their efficacy. Interestingly, uh, it is very similar to standard gauze in that scenario where you don't hold pressure. So the dressings really have to be utilized by the way they're recommended by the manufacturer to be, to be effective. All of them? All of them. And you mentioned that um, chitosan-based products, which is, the again, the Celox and the uh, Hemcon, um, can be used in coagulopathic patients because they basically work by plugging the hole. How about the other one, the zeolite-based uh, product, which is quick clot and uh, combat gauze? So uh, the quick clot and the combat gauze are both uh, – let, uh, let me just make an addition to that. So a big component of the way all of these things work is the actual pressure component. So pressure is – can be utilized in a coagulopathic patient. So from the standpoint of the pressure component, I think you do get an effect. Uh, the quick clot uh, and the combat gauze are, however, dependent on the intrinsic – uh, clotting capacity of the patient. So theoretically, those will be affected if the patient is coagulopathic and does not have adequate clotting capacity. Uh, I think, you know, having stated, you know, having said all this, uh, I think clearly any of the dressings will work better in a patient with intact coagulation parameters. But theoretically speaking, uh, the chitosan-based products should work better in a coagulopathic patient. Now, that's never been studied. I can't provide you with data that shows that, that one dressing is better than the other in a certain scenario, but these are theoretical concerns. And so getting to the literature, one starts to read about these things, and he quickly realizes there's a lot of conflicting data out there. There's a lot of porcine models with conflicting data out there. What are some of the differences in the animal studies that you should look for in trying to see if it's a good model, a valid model? So that's a great question. Uh, I think that I personally think that we're all a victim of, you know, we, we sort of make our models. And this is something we do in our lab, not purposefully, obviously, but we make our models almost in a way that will make the dressing seem successful. So I think that you, when you look at the literature, you have to interpret this, that 
you know, many of these studies are funded by the companies that make the dressings. Uh, you know, investigators have this intrinsic desire to have a positive study that shows a difference. So I think that there is some concern that the models are generated in a way that makes the dressing effective. Uh, things to think about when looking at the various models is the nature of the injuries that are made, very importantly. So a typical injury that these dressings are studying is a femoral artery swine injury. So important aspects of those injuries are, number one, is it a punch-type injury or is it a transection of the vessel? Uh, the pig vessels are, are fairly small, and if you transect the vessel, they tend to spasm and bleeding can stop, whereas if the, if the the ends of the vessel remain intact, such as in a, in a punch-type situation. The hole is held open, and the, and the bleeding tends to continue. So I think that's one very important thing to look at. Another very important thing to look at is uh, how long do the investigators allow the injury to bleed before the treatment? The longer you allow the injury to bleed, the lower the blood pressure uh, goes, and the easier it is to control the bleeding with the various agents. So I think that's a very important. The third thing to look at is the, uh, the mechanism of the resuscitation. So how aggressive is resuscitation? You'll see studies where uh, animals receive a single bolus of a fluid. Uh, a lot of them receive Hexten, which is because that's the recommended uh, pre-hospital fluid by the military. They'll receive a single 500cc bolus and no further uh, resuscitation. Other models will resuscitate to a goal blood pressure or a fixed volume, and you'll see animals receiving 7, 10 liters in some of those models. So I think that is a critical element is that the aggressiveness of the resuscitation is going to affect the bleeding. And in fact, it should worsen the bleeding. Exactly. So, you know, the models that, uh, the models that have long periods of time till the dressing is applied and give a minimal resuscitation, you're going to have, it's going to facilitate hemorrhage control much better than the models that have early application and give large amounts of fluid. So on that then, let's transition from that to the human. <clears throat> the reports from the military really suggested that it, these products work. Um, but as you talk to a lot of trauma surgeons who've tried these things in the in-hospital civilian side, they kind of say, you know, it's, it's, not as, uh, it's not as clean as the military data would suggest. Why is there a discrepancy? Well, I think that, I mean, the problem with the military data is it's really all observational trials. Uh, so these are, you know, we applied 60, we made 67 applications of HemeCon. This is what happened. There's no comparator. Uh, it's purely observational. Uh, you wonder about bias. Uh, were there cases where it was applied and we didn't hear about them? It didn't work. Uh, in the, particularly in the HemeCon study, many of the applications occurred after standard gauze had been applied and failed. So maybe the standard gauze had decreased the bleeding, which then increases the success rate of the HemeCon. But the problem is that there's no comparators. These are all observational trials. So you really don't know uh, from those trials how effective the dressing really And you is. said that <clears throat> right now in the field, the medic, prior to arrival to the uh, forward theater, will give 500 mils hex then and that's it? Yeah, so the, the military uh, resuscita resuscitation paradigm is that if the patient has no radial pulse, or is, has a decline in mental status as evidence of shock, a single bolus of 500 cc's of Hexten is the recommended initial fluid. Uh, that may be repeated once. So uh, the recommendation from the, tactical, the, tactical, the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care is a single bolus of Hexten in the, in the presence of evidence of shock that may be repeated once. And beyond that, the patient should not receive any additional fluid. So a lot of the animal models out there are based on that resuscitation paradigm. And that's certainly very different than the patient I'm operating on in the operating room with anesthesia, maybe pouring in fluid. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Is there a downside to using these products? Well, obviously, the quick clot, uh, as I mentioned, uh, is associated with burns, both to the caregiver as well as the patient. Uh, interestingly, in terms of the, the quick clot story actually has a little bit more story to it, which is they uh, designed a new product called Quick Clot ACH. And that product does not make the uh, exothermic reaction. Unfortunately, it also doesn't work as well. <laughs> so uh, that has not been uh, utilized very much. So the quick clot has a definite downside. Uh, the Kytosan products are interesting uh, in that they are actually bacteriostatic. Uh, not bacteriostatic, but bacteriostatic. So there's an association with uh, actually decreased infections with the use of the HemeCon, pro- uh, the HemeCon product or the Celox product. There's minimal to no downside uh, with either of those products, and I would say the same for the, uh, the Combat Goss. But all the products have to be removed. Absolutely. So these are all dressing. you know, they're either dressings. Uh, that actually, that's an excellent point, is that the Quick Clot is this granular product that uh, with the burning element of it, it almost has to be excised almost has to be surgically excised. I mean, if you look at the wounds that have had quick clot placed in them, it looks like there's uh, a lot of dirt in the wound. They have to be carefully irrigated and almost debrided out. Whereas the, all the dressing components, uh, they do have to remove, but they come out intact. Mm-hmm. And there may be minimal residual chitosan left in the wounds. That's absorbed and, again, is, is actually bacteriostatic. And then just to kind of bring the talk to a close, that was a pretty good overview, I thought, um, I think I already know the answer to this, but are you using any of these products in your practice now as a civilian, and how? So I uh, I use all of the products, uh, some form of all the products. Uh, so I I tip I tend to use a fair amount of Flow Seal in my practice on the gunshot wounds and the track type injuries I mentioned. I use the Evacil, which is human uh, thrombin and fibrinogen, as a spray. When I have broad surfaces of injury, like uh, if I've done a colon mobilization, the retroperitoneum is diffusely bleeding, I use that with a, with a CO2 applicator to get a diffuse application. I sometimes will use a, a thrombin spray in those that are bleeding less. Uh, in terms of the, uh, the advanced hemostatic dressings, the one I, would typically, I typically use is the combat gauze. And I'm gonna, I use that in patients who have sort of uh, uh, very bad bleeding. Uh, and typically I might use that in association with a tourniquet. So maybe the tur- tourniquet goes on first and then ap- apply the combat gauze to get additional control and then get the patient to the operating room for formal proximal distal control in the case of uh, vascular injuries. Are you leaving any of these things, uh, not the flow seals, but the advanced topical hemostatics, are you using them as part of your damage control, leaving them on and then taking them off a day later when you bring the patient back? Uh, you know, Generally not, because, you know, these, again, are only for, I'm using them as they're dictated to be used, which is for external use, and generally th- that means that they're being used in the setting of a vascular injury. So, uh, you know, obviously I'll use them before I get into the operating room and get the proximal distal control, but at, at that point in time, generally you, it, it's not required. Okay. Now, it, it, I have done that on occasion when the patient is severely coagulopathic and the, and the bleeding from the wound remains uh, coagulopathic bleeding. Well, this, uh, I think, has been a, a very good overview um, of, of all of the various uh, types of hemostatic agents that are available now. I would suggest uh, for anybody who wants to get more information, uh, go to PubMed or whatever uh, search engine and search Schreiber as the author. You'll hit a couple of uh, g- really good um, review articles in the last couple of years uh, that will give you a better overview and more in-depth of the discussion we've had. We've been speaking today with uh, Dr. Martin Schreiber regarding the role of topical hemostatics to arrest hemorrhage following injury. I'd like to thank you again for taking the time to review this with us. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. 
For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob Axirani.